Welcome to the Order from Ashes podcast. I'm Naira Antoun, Director of the Transnational Trends and Citizenship Initiative, and I'm joined today by Hayal Akarsu and Alex Vitale to discuss police reform and global perspective. Thank you both for joining us. Um, Hayal is an assistant professor of anthropology at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Her research project is an ethnography of police reforms in Turkey. Alex is professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center. He's coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project. Thank you both for joining us. So perhaps we can uh, start off by um, just from the observation that we're sort of seeing reform discussed in a lot of settings and a sort of crisis and questioning of uh, police legitimacy. Um, yeah, in a lot of places, could we say there is a, a global crisis of policing and policing legitimacy, or are there several different crises at the same time? Uh, Hayal, maybe uh, you can start us off. Hello, everyone, and uh, thanks, Naira, for having me. Uh, I, I think uh, Across the world, we are in a period that people question the role of police in a society, right? Are they heavy-handed arm of the state? What are the police for? Whose interests are they serving? The state, corporate actors, or ordinary citizens whose lives matter at or are protected by the police and at what cost. And I think uh, police have a really interesting police, uh, uh, very in interesting role here, setting, sitting at the intersection of uh, state and society. Therefore, they are also at the center of many contested debates over citizenship, belonging, democracy, and rule of law, right? And uh, for instance, I was the other day reading a recent survey in Turkey where researchers have found out that uh, even those people who have trust on the effectiveness of the police, for instance, solving crimes, they are still suspicious that they will be treated uh, unequally when they encounter with the police. So this is really important that this sense of like discrimination that uh, people have, uh, the kind of uh, like all of these trust issues, I, I think they are very central to the uh, global uh, legitimacy crisis of the police. And especially in contexts like Turkey, where we see these authoritarian governments government which utilized police to uh, like for the political oppression really policing crisis is also interrelated with this crisis about uh, like people's sense of justice right and another thing maybe uh, like just most of the time unnoticed that police are uh, usually sitting on uh, the like very enormous amount of resources. Like uh, they are uh, investing on high-tech technologies, weapons, surveillance mechanisms, but we are also in, at a time of economic crisis and there is this uh, like, uh, like resources being re retracted from welfare services. So this is also this uh, question of, about where do the states spend uh, the money? So like uh, these are, I think, some of the general causes that we can think globally in terms of the policing crisis. Alex? Yeah, I think 
I think uh, that's that's right. And I think, you know, so we have to understand that the crisis looks different in different places, but there is a kind of broad global crisis of policing right now. And what I've seen is, you know, either it's driven by uh, repressive political policing in places like Chile and Colombia and Turkey. Uh, in some cases, it's driven by uh, long-term problems of, of corruption and ineffectiveness in places like Brazil, uh, India, uh, Mexico, and uh, Nigeria. Uh, and in other places, uh, South Africa, sorry, the list is very long. And in other places, though, such as the United States and some parts of Europe, what we see is a crisis in everyday policing. Uh, which is, I think, motivated by a broader kind of consciousness about the connection between policing and racial injustice. So that even policing that is not cor- overtly corrupt or even you know, grossly excessive is still under significant fire, sometimes triggered by you know, a high-profile, outrageous police killing but I think the level of protest and the, the deepness of the legitimacy crisis is driven by everyday policing, traffic stops, uh, stop and frisk practices and from South London to the South Bronx to South L.A. Uh, and so there's not a one-size-fits-all solution to this problem. Mm-hmm. And would you say uh- – Hayal, like and some of the opposition to policing in, in Turkey also stems from everyday policing. I mean, when we think of, um, you know, one of the, one framing that I think is a useful framing for the 2011 uh, uprisings in the Arab world was the question of it being opposition to police brutality. And uh, I think often the, the focus in media representation was on the torture of uh activists and and dissidents, but I think that um, a key motivating uh, factor for people and why, or one of the reasons it it crossed class was precisely the opposition to, um, you know, the long-term effect of this uh, brutal uh, everyday policing that was often uh, along class lines. Um, Hayal, what's what's it like in Turkey on that front? No, you are absolutely right. And when we think of Gezi Park protest of 2013, for instance, the protest has started as a kind of protest against the demolition of City Park and uh, Taksim Istanbul. But because of the massive crackdown of the police against the protesters, actually a protest uh like has grow and uh, like many people uh, like express their resentment against uh, the police violence. And uh, I, I should note that this was also a period when Turkey has been undergoing many democratization, human rights, good governance reforms. So it was really in contrast to all of these investments in reforms and people ask, okay, like what are you doing with uh, reforms if you are not preventing violence? So in in many ways, uh, most of the uh, like crisis that we associated uh, with the police are felt in the everyday life. So for me, it's also kind of uh, like uh, 
hard to make this distinction between the everyday life and uh, not everyday life policing, right? So, like, I definitely agree. And you brought up the the Gezi Park protests and the uh, repression. And we saw, I mean, we often see that, don't we? When there's mass mobilization, wherever it is in the world, we also see scenes of uh, uh, police uh, response. And, you know, there was something uh, perhaps predictable, perhaps slightly absurd. Um, Seeing in the last couple of years mass protests in the U.S. and other places really centered on police brutality being responded to with police brutality, right? Um, Is that something that we often see? And does it mean that that, does that turn people's gaze to police brutality, whatever it is that they end up protesting about or or not necessarily? I think uh, because... Usually police brutality is very spectacular, right? Like all these tear gases, water cannons, all this kind of even uh, televised specter of uh, like police violence. Of course, like uh, like creates uh, resentment among the people and in the opposition. But I also think there's there's a kind of process, accumulation of this very minor everyday effects of police violence. Sometimes... Uh, sometimes maybe like really less uh, like uh, violence, but uh, implicitly exp- uh, like kind of discriminating attitudes of the police are accumulating at uh, people's psyches in, in a way, making them to react policing. You know, I think part of what's going on in terms of uh, reactions to the policing, uh, the violence of protest policing is that, you know, most everyday policing is experienced primarily by poor and vulnerable communities. And middle class, upper middle class members of society often have very little interaction with the police. And I think part of what we see in places like Hong Kong, uh, Istanbul, uh, uh, Santiago, is middle class people engaged in pro-democracy type protests being subjected to policing for the first time in their lives. And so this is forcing them to have a kind of reassessment about taken for granted views about policing. Exactly. That was uh, actually one of the criticisms uh, that uh, people from the Kurdish movement made against some of the Gezpar protesters, right? Because this was the first time uh, for some middle class Istanbul citizens to face the brutality of the police when police uh, have been doing all of this in the Kurdish majority cities. So it uh, it was no longer the smiling, serving face of the police, but uh, really the police as a kind of thing, injustice in, in the society, like kind of uh, this mi- middle class op- opposition, it was first time for them to experiencing such kind of uh, like police violence. So this is something that we see across context, right? That where there are protests that have a relatively wide uh, demo- demographic, we have people who in their normal lives might uh, ask the police for directions, call the police when a crime is committed, seeing the police at their worst, uh, quote unquote. And so that is an interesting political moment. Uh, Hayal, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier about 
economic crisis um, and what is the state spending money on? And um, I suppose I want to ask you both, um, could we say that there are um, economic, global economic factors to this? Can we link um, increasing en economic inequality with this question? Actually, maybe Alex, I'll turn to you first. Yes, I, I think absolutely. I think, and maybe we should understand it in in two ways, right? Is that we we do have a kind of global integrated economy that has, in some settings, you know, produced some advances for the middle class in places like China and India, but it has also created tremendous polarization, and huge numbers of people are being left out of this period of economic growth. And that is producing two types of crises that have been responded to with policing. The first are organized political protest, calling for more democracy, greater economic inequality, less austerity, etc. And on the other hand, it's given rise to a combination of low-level disorder and what we might think of as criminal behavior increases in black market activity, street crime in, in places like South Africa and Brazil, for instance, uh, and also the growth of problems like mass homelessness, untreated mental health and substance abuse problems, which we see in Western countries, in, in Europe, in, in the United States. And policing is being used to aggressively manage those problems but they don't actually have tools to solve or resolve those problems satisfactorily. It's a form of repressing those problems, and that is directly contributing to the legitimacy crisis. And that's what we mean, or that's what people mean when they refer to policing the crisis, right? It's this exactly. economic, broader crisis, actually. Um, Hayal, did you have anything to add? Exactly. Maybe I think that uh, where uh, Alex left, uh, actually, this is really tied to legitimate crisis in terms of we, we can think that police violence or policing comes into state when the state uh, runs out in governing the populations or the problems that they have, right? Because most of the time we are grouping so many things like economic inequalities, social inequalities, all kind of problems. And then uh, the, the solution uh, is usually kind of uh, asking police uh, to solve this problem. So this is a kind of uh, uh, like a general uh, like kind of problem we have. And the second thing in, in my second project, I'm looking at uh, uh, like policing of the environmental protests, where we see, for instance, Turkish government use the police to serve the interest of the corporate actors, usually multinational mining companies, or, or because the government also wants to attract business to the uh, Turkey. So here also we uh, see how police has been used as a tool to uh, for the corporate interest. Hmm. I wanted to ask you, uh, Hayal, in your work, which has been focused on uh, Turkey, and um, it's been ethnic and ethnography, uh, You've also sort of turned your gaze to something that you call um, a global industry of reform, of police reform. What, what do you mean by that? 
Great question. So as you said, police reform today more than ever before is a global industry. And what what do I mean by the global industry? Well, we can uh, talk about the global circulation of money, expertise, security, and policing discourses, as well as policing technologies and tools. In my work, for instance, I explore European Union-funded police reform projects in Turkey. The EU, as you may know, requires candidate countries to reform and democratize their governmental and security apparatus. So to meet EU standards, the Turkish National Police have invested heavily in police reforms. These reforms have focused on issues of human rights, accountability, transparency, and good governance. But these are the projects that we are like uh, have like millions of euros of budget. So like investments in personnel, training, equipment. So despite Turkish entry to the EU now being uh, a distant prospect, most of these investments remain active. And I should also emphasize that, especially in non-lasting contexts, all of these police reform projects are also related to broader democratization, good governance, development kinds of projects. So some of the uh, projects I followed were also funded by UNDP, World Bank uh, money. And uh, secondly, we can think of this kind of networks of uh, like uh, experts, right? Uh, There's international security experts, policymakers, human rights activists, and even like uh, people that we might uh, call like police reform gurus. Like these are the people who actually make careers out of this, out of this reform industry. And like every industry, they also see some profit. So uh, like, for instance, in my field work, I was really struck with the extent of the entanglement of these international networks. I've attended... Uh, many trainings involving experts from the US, UK, France, South Africa, Northern Ireland. I accompanied my police interlocutors while they are having this police reform tourism to UK, Northern Ireland, Belfast. So like uh, especially places like, for instance, Northern Ireland and South Africa, they now advertise themselves as showcases for police reform in post-conflict situations. Situations and uh, what does that mean? So, like for instance, because of uh, the kind of reforms after the like uh, in the post-apartheid period or in the Northern Ireland, all this uh, like police reforms are packaged in a way to be uh, sold and transferred to the countries transitioning to the democracy or like. all these kind of post-conflict situations, like they are turned into best practices, standards to be implemented in different locales. So these and, these uh, standards, these are kind of templates that are the same yeah, in all of these. Exactly, exactly. There are templates. For instance, they have different categories, like police professionalism, do this, don't do this, or uh, community police interaction, have community uh, police gatherings, or uh, do this. Is, uh, don't do this. So all kind of even there is a uh, one uh, like 
like booklet with uh, almost 140 items, the kind of list of things, which was even taught as a textbook in the police academy when I was doing a filter. I guess like really bullet point, item by item, a list of things one need to do or not to do uh, for uh, reforming the police. And the uh, mentioning my field work on the Turkish National Police Academy, I have also noticed that uh, Turkish police have prepared all of these international catalogs and have been having trainings for the police officers in the Middle East, in the uh, Africa. So it's not just the global circulation of reforms from uh, like West to non-Western countries or what we call global North to South. So just to understand, sorry, yeah. Hayal, just to understand sure. correctly. So, so Turkish police have attended sort of multiple trainings. Exactly. And then they themselves have delivered similar training to other police forces in the region. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. So, uh, for instance, because Turkey has been reforming its police and security apparatus for more than a decade, now it's also advertising uh, uh, like itself as a kind of exporter, importer of the reform to those regions. So I attended trainings where there were officers from different Middle Eastern countries getting training from uh, the Turkish police about how to do things. So it is uh, because Turkey also has this kind of geopolitical ambitions about uh, the kind of leading a, a model, being a model in the Middle East, in the developing world. They are in a way incorporated, reutilize these reforms to uh, insert their influences in different uh, regions of the world. Right. So this, the existence of this uh, reform industry provides a kind of further opportunity or tool to, to play this regional role. Exactly. Right? And it, exactly. And it's not just about police reform, as I should underline. It's also, this is something we also see all this sort, sort, like kind of exchanges. We also see this in the development uh, areas in, for instance, energy transition projects. All the idea is you're not going to learn it from the uh, West, but from us who have just gone through this process, right? Very interesting. And yeah, and as you say, in the uh, global South or developing world, often there is this rubric of uh, good governance, democratization, and so on, which just those terms aren't really applied when we're speaking about the, the Western world. We don't talk about good governance when we're talking about the US or the, or the UK. But nevertheless, are there, um, Alex, some similar sort of underlying assumptions or similar solutions that we're that we're seeing well i mean this is such a, a a huge area and i really recommend that people look at the work of stuart schrader uh and nicole siegel who document the fact that you know police reform has has always been a part of policing because there are inherent legitimacy problems and that police reform has also been, as Hayel sort of suggested, a form of foreign policy, a kind of uh, something in between the soft power of diplomacy and the hard power of military interventions. The U.S. has consistently used police reform, I kind of put that in quotes, 
as a, as a part of its foreign policy initiatives in Vietnam and Latin America, and also in the direct support of resource extraction. So that, you know, the going in and training police in, in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries as part of cementing our long-term relationships with those countries. And we see this going on in Iraq now as well. And of course, this has nothing to do with actually improving policing. So Hayel mentioned South Africa holding itself out as a beacon of policing. But if we look at, for instance, uh, Zion Sturman's book, Can We Be Safe About South African Policing, uh, there's nothing really to celebrate there. They're hardly, they should hardly be held up as a, as a model of you know, post-conflict policing doing better. It's largely unreformed in essence, despite the expenditure of hundreds of millions of dollars in, in training and equipment and professionalization and all the rest, because the underlying policing mission that they are pursuing in South Africa is fundamentally problematic. Uh, so the what we see, right, is that police reform is an extension of foreign policy and a form of legitimacy seeking, uh, and that it's not producing it, real transitions in in policing. Right, and I mean every time that there, there have been you know significant political transitions, whether we're talking yeah South Africa apartheid, um, the end of the military dictatorships in Latin America, post uh, Soviet states. Um, after the uprisings in the Middle East, to some extent, it was a, a thwarted conversation. But the question of uh, police reform and police professionalization always um, sort of uh, comes up. Um, does re- police reform look different in uh, authoritarian states to democratic uh, states? Um, Hael, maybe you can say something there. Of course, the types of reforms have been done in authoritarian and democratic states might be different according to the context. So it's a kind of hard question to answer. But maybe I, I can uh, like uh, I can suggest to uh, kind of not to ex- exaggerate this contrast. Uh, contrast between democratic and authoritarian states, right? Because most of the time when I give presentations about how Turkish state and the Turkish police have used uh, police reforms to strengthen their power, I was getting responses that, oh, okay, then Turkish state uh, failed to implement these reforms properly. But what I saw in the field that actually most of these reforms were implemented really well, but not uh but uh, the point of the reforms was not kind of uh reach out challenging the moral political underpinnings of the police but kind of making them more professional more efficient uh, which are at the end serving the interest of the police so i think it's really important to look at this kind of uh similarities between these diverse contexts to understand some core problems uh, in the operation of the policing in everyday life. You know, uh, even even the sort of uh, researchers who do this reform work have had to acknowledge that, you know, states get the policing that they want. So when you have authoritarian states, the policing is going to reflect that. There's going to be a level of corruption 
the police are going to be used to suppress political opposition movements. There's going to be ineffectiveness in policing. And that can't be solved through police reform. It requires political reform. And so that's one of the fundamental flaws with this whole ecosystem of police reform is it imagines the problems of like human rights abuses, political repression can be solved with some training and increased pay of the police while ignoring the role of the interior minister or the home minister and the political leadership of the country that is demanding that the police engage in these harmful and repressive practices. So it's it's it seems completely backwards and therefore, you know, the, the people will reformers will point to a little victory here, a little victory there, but I would argue that those victories are driven by larger political transformations, not the effectiveness of some training program. Exactly. And this is also really, uh, really crucial in, in contexts uh, like Turkey, where we have national police, right? Or uh, like places like France or other places where uh, like police bureaucracy is tightly uh, connected with the state bureaucracy. So even among my police interlocutors, they were also having this resentments against some of the reforms. For instance, there's this discussion about that police needs to have this operational autonomy, right? They they need to have this agency and decide on what to do based on their professional expertise. But my interlocutors were were complaining that, okay, what if we are getting a call from the uh, ministry? What are we going to do? So all of this uh, kind of uh, networks, uh, really uh, underlines the importance of not to decoupling police reform from the political reform. You know, when the interior minister says, get those protesters out of the park, it, no amount of police training and professionalization is going to make any difference. They're going to clear that park and they're going to use whatever force is needed to accomplish that goal, whether it's lawful, professional, excessive, etc. Right. And across um, both democratic and authoritarian states, we have this this question that you've both alluded to of the links of a, a state with corporate power. So perhaps the type of research that Hayel is doing on environmental protest is going to be, you know, an increasingly important one um, across many contexts and different kinds of states. Um, do either of you have anything to add before we wrap up? And I might uh, add something because when we talk about this kind of global connections, we also uh, think all of this kind of uh, high scale meetings and uh, kind of uh, like in the five star hotels or this kind of trainings, but also very mundane things because, for instance, community policing uh, like practices like have an ice cream track, a coloring book for kids. When uh, community policing has been important from the U.S. and Turkey, really they are also implemented. Now Turkish police have this kind of ice cream tracks, this coloring books, this fancy brochures, or this mascots. So uh, we uh, also need to pay attention to this kind of very mundane objects of police reform that travel and infuse the everyday life. And I think this raises the issue of kind of ethical accountability 
for researchers, for foundations who are basically in the business of propping up the legitimacy sometimes of of essentially authoritarian, undemocratic, and repressive governments and, you know, deeply corrupt and abusive police forces. Thank you. And, yeah, and the existence of these sort of repeated... um, Items really in these in these uh, uh, templates um, from the quite grand to as you say the quite mundane. Uh, their very existence invites us to 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 be a bit more comparative in how we and transnational and how we think about police reform. Uh, thank you very much, both of you, for uh, for joining us. You've been listening to the Order from Ashes podcast. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.